The scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not extinguish the light. A man named John was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him everyone would believe in the light. He himself wasn't the light, but his mission was to testify concerning the light. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light. But the world did not recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people did not welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not of blood, nor of human passion or desire, but born from God. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory Glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, This is the one whom I have said. He who comes after me is greater than me because he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. As the law was given through Moses, so grace and truth come into being through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. God, the only Son, who's at the Father's side, has made God known. Good morning. My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Before we dive into John this morning, um, I just wanted to share briefly about um, the Well Project that Liz shared with us a little about this morning that we are raising money for wells overseas. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had a chance to travel in a pretty remote area of East Africa, and it just happened that one Sunday um, while I was traveling there, I had a chance to worship with a church community whose village had just had a well dug a couple months before. Um, and it was like all that people could talk about the whole time we were there um, because the digging of this well in their village had just changed the lives of pretty much every family there. Um, they told me that prior to the digging of this well, each family had had to spend between six and eight hours a day walking for water. Um, mostly that was the responsibility of the, the wife and any girls in the household. So they were spending all day walking 10 miles to get water, bring it back to the village. And because this well had been dug, um, all of their girls were able to go to school. 
Um, so I, I just wanted you to hear that and know that when we do projects like this, like we are talking about fundamentally life-changing measures, not just for health, but with all kinds of rippling impacts for family life, for education, for all sorts of things. Um, so it's, it's really amazing we have a chance to invest in other people in ways that really can alter the future of their families. Um, so just keep that in mind as you think and pray about what God might be calling you to share with others around the world this season. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this interconnected web that we belong to. We, your children here in Phoenix, Arizona, and your children in remote places where cars and vehicles have never been, where light comes in the form of candles and not electricity. You are the one who knows all of us and binds us all together. So we thank you for this vast, diverse, beautiful and mysterious community. Show us what it means to be your children truly, to be people of grace and truth and love just as you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are in the third week of this Advent series called Intense Simplicities, um, which if you haven't been here with us so far in the series, I've been mentioning to you that this phrase, intense simplicities, comes from one of my favorite quotes from Winston Churchill, who said, out of intense complexities, intense simplicities emerge. Now, I like this quote because it really reminds me that faith often feels really complicated, but it can all be boiled down to a few essential pieces, sort of like electrons and neutrons and protons, like these fundamental particles at the heart of everything that the rest of the world is all built from. Um, so, so, for example, last week we talked about one of those things is the command of love. Love is the only real fundamental command at the heart of Christianity. So this week we're going to talk about a different statement uh, Jesus made. Last week we talked about Jesus saying, love each other as I have loved you. Well, here's something else Jesus said. John 14, 6. Jesus told his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, um, John puts it like this. Um, he, He says, Grace and truth came into being through Jesus Christ. Now, I have to admit, for the last two weeks, I've been really wrestling every day with myself. Like, are we really going to talk about truth in a series on simplicities? Honestly, in 2021, no concept seems more complicated than the concept of truth. I was a philosophy major as an undergrad, and you know, at the time that I, I was in my under, doing my undergrad work, um, the kind of West was in the midst of this enormous shift into an area of philosophy known as like postmodernism, right? And like maybe you haven't dug deep into postmodern philosophy, but you probably are familiar with some of the the contours of it because this has been a part of our cultural water. Um, for the last 20 or 30 years. And and a big part of the conversation at that time was around this concept of truth and really the question, is there any truth at all? And when postmodern philosophy began to kind of ripple through Western culture, there was this feeling like maybe the direction we're moving is to say, there is no truth, there's only perspectives. 
Right? Nothing is fundamentally true. There's just a lot of different perspectives on things. Now, what's interesting is that concept did not weather well for the last 20 years. Like, it, it, it kind of teased something that was provocative for people, but the, the problem is that nobody was actually willing to let go of the idea that some things are right and wrong. Right? We might disagree what those are, but nobody seems fundamentally able to embrace the idea that everything is just relative and there's no such thing as something being right or wrong. Um, similarly, in the last couple years, we've had more of a conversation. You also get into really problematic areas if, if you think there is no such thing as truth, that there's no way to say something happened or it didn't happen. Right? The, the idea of just everything being perspective and there is no truth just hasn't worked well in terms of a functioning existence. But, but that being said, the, the fact that that idea that it's just all relative hasn't weathered very well has not stopped a deeper debate over the question of who has the truth. Right? Not, not is there truth, but who possesses it? The, the question of whose experiences get heard, whose voices get counted when we talk about what truth is. So, so that's the conversation now that seems to be unfolding more. It's, it's not really is there something true, but like who gets heard when we begin to have that conversation? So, so in that kind of context, when that's the conversation swirling in the culture, I imagine that when we put up a verse on the wall that says, Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and life, we have groups of people in this room today who are having very different reactions to that as a phrase. There are some of us who hear Jesus say, I am the truth, and we feel this kind of huge wave of just incredible relief. Like, thank goodness there's something in the world that I can be certain about. But I imagine there are others of us who hear Jesus say, I am the truth, and we start to get really uncomfortable. I mean, maybe when you hear that phrase, I am the truth, the first thing you think of is your experience with power-hungry preachers who squish anyone who dissents with their opinion. Maybe when you hear Jesus say, I am the truth, what you think of is people who are using the truth, like sharpening it into arrows and shooting it at anybody they encounter during the week. Or maybe there are some of you who hear Jesus say, I am the truth, and what really kind of rises for you is the sense of overwhelming doubt. Like, there, there are Christian groups, and there are non-Christian groups of other religions all over the world, and all of them are claiming to know something about the truth, and it seems to you statistically unlikely that you happen to stumble into the right building today where the people had actually figured everything out. Like, maybe statistically that doesn't seem like something you're ready to gamble on. So this is the dilemma we're all caught in, right? On the one hand, we don't want to think that everything is relative and equally good. Like, we don't want to think there's no truth about whether the earth is flat or not. We don't want to think that it's okay to have the idea that some people are better than other people by virtue of the color of their skin. Right? Like, not all ideas are equally true and good. But on the other hand, the kind of big truth claims that religions in particular make, maybe seem really arrogant and close-minded to us, and possibly even dangerous. That's our dilemma, right? That there's things weighing on both sides. We don't want it all to be relative, and yet the claim seems really dangerous. What do we do in that kind of truth tension? 
Well, when I think about what it means to me to live in that space of tension as a modern person, um, the, the first thing that comes to mind to me is actually a really ancient story. There's a story near the beginning of the Bible that is over 3,000 years old that is kind of shockingly relevant to this conversation. And the story is told in the book of Exodus about a man named Moses who is a shepherd and he's out herding sheep in the middle of nowhere when all of a sudden he spots up ahead this bush that's on fire. And it catches his attention not just because it's on fire, but it keeps on burning and it doesn't seem to be burning up. And so he approaches the bush to see what's going on. And all of a sudden, to his total shock, he hears a voice speaking out of the fire calling his name. And the voice in the fire introduces himself as the God of Moses' ancestors. The voice says that he's heard the cries of all of these slaves who are crying out in pain, and he wants to rescue them. And then the voice says, I'm sending you, Moses, I'm sending you to help. Now, this this kind of moment raises all kinds of questions for Moses, as it would for you. And and his first question is like, "Who, who am I to pull this off? And his second question is, wait a minute, who are you? Uh, Moses says to the voice, to God in the bush, everybody is going to want a name if I show up there in Egypt. So what am I supposed to tell them? What is your name? Now, I don't know about you, but this, this strikes me as a really weird question. I mean, imagine yourself as a slave in this giant empire who's being abused and, and, and all of that, and somebody shows up and says, God has sent me to rescue you. Is your first question really going to be, Which God? Do you mean Sam or Dave? Now, like, what difference does it make what the name is? Like, this seems like a really weird question for Moses to be prioritizing. Um, But here's the thing. In the ancient world, they believed that names had actual power. If you knew a person's name or even a deity's name, like, the name told you something about the essence of that person or that God. And if you managed to acquire the secret name of a deity, of a god out there somewhere, you would have some level of mastery or control over that deity. Moses is nervous. He doesn't want to take this mission on. And so he's grasping at some level of mastery and control. God, what is your name? What can I take into this situation with me? So hopefully you can begin to hear the conversation that's unfolding in this story is is much bigger than a conversation about the nerves of one ancient shepherd. The conversation of the story is actually about the desire of all people everywhere at all times to know God's name and master reality with a capital R. To master truth with a capital T. That's what this story is actually about. I mean, it's not just Moses, but people everywhere at all times want to pin God, pin truth with the capital T down. We want to wrap our arms around it. We want to understand exactly what it is we are dealing with. I mean, in part because that gives us a sense of comfort and control to like know what it is we're dealing with. And in part because if anyone questions us, like Moses thinks he's going to be questioned, then we can just drop the truth bomb and let it explode, right? Like, this is a kind of universal human impulse to want to wrap ourselves fully around something. 
This is what Moses is looking for. Give me, give me your name. Give me truth with a capital T that I can take in as that, that bomb if I need it. Like, that'll give me confidence going forward. And you know what God says to Moses about this? God says, you want to know my name? Well, here's what you can call me. You can call me Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Moses has just been roundly put in his place. And what, what I think is really amazing about this is if you know anything about the rest of the story of Moses, Moses is going to see the greatest miracles of God that any human being who's lived has probably ever seen. I mean, Moses is going to hear God's voice. He's going to receive the Ten Commandments. He's going to be called God's friend. He's going to be so close to God that when he walks out of these conversations that he has in the place of worship with God, he'll actually be glowing with the light of God. Moses is a guy who's going to get to know God really, really well. But in this first introduction, God says to Moses, before any of that happens, before you see my miracles, before you hear my voice, before you become my friend, here's what you need to know from the start. You will never own me. You are never going to own me. You're never going to be able to capture me in some kind of neat phrase or little box. You're never going to get to go out there and make the claim that you have me mastered. That's not where this story is going. Right? That, that, that's the kind of terms of the relationship God starts with Moses. Like, you are going to know me intimately, but you are never going to own me. So, what does that 3,000-year-old conversation have to do with those of us much later who are followers of Jesus? Well, about 1,500 years after Moses, one of Jesus' followers named John, in his introduction to the life of Jesus, gives us this incredible kind of prologue to the story that we heard read this morning. And let me just read the first few verses again. This is what John says about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the word, and without the word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light of all people. All right. This phrase that, that John is using to describe Jesus, the word, where does this come from? Um, well, this word that we've translated in English, word, in Greek, this word is logos, L-O-G-O-S, um, which you, you might be able to hear, it's the same root as the English word logic, logos, logic. Um, it, this word was used a lot of ways in the first century and in philosophy and in religion, but basically you might think of the statement John is making uh, that the word that is with God in the start is God's logic, God's rationality, God's wisdom is with God from the very start. And not only, John says, was God's, God's rationality, logic, wisdom with God, it was God. It, it was a truthful expression of God's heart and God's mind and who God is, right? A, a word is expressive. It's something you state out. 
But the big surprise is not that God's, God's word, God's speech, God's self-expression, God's logic, God's rationality was with God. That makes sense, right? But the big twist, the big surprise of the story comes in verse 14 when John says, God's rationality, God's wisdom, God's logic, God's reason has become a person. In the person of Jesus, John says, we have seen reality with a capital R. We have seen the mind, the reasoning of God kind of instantiated in human flesh. If you fast forward way to the end of Jesus' life, when when Jesus is on trial for his life, um, there's this incredible conversation Jesus has with a man named Pilate, who is the one conducting his trial. And Pilate gets really frustrated with stuff Jesus is saying at one point, and and Jesus says he's come to show people the truth, and and Pilate kind of scoffs, and he says, what is truth? Which always makes me laugh a little, because it tells me our our conversations have not advanced a lot in 2,000 years. Right? The, the cynicism of Pilate is not dissimilar from 21st century people. Um, but, but the reason that question is recorded by the gospel writers, the reason it comes up is because they want you to recognize what Pilate got wrong is he's asking the wrong question. The question isn't what is truth. The question is who is truth. Truth hasn't been given to the world as a what. When God wanted to send the truth of God's mind, God didn't give a document, a thesis. Truth has come into the world as a person, a who and not a what. So maybe you're asking yourself, is this just some kind of boring, abstract, philosophic debate that nerds like to debate in college? Like what possible difference could it make if truth is a what or a who? I think, in fact, it makes all the difference in the world. Everything changes if truth is not a what, but a who. Um, Because it means we don't have, we have never had, and we never will have the kind of truth that Moses wanted and people still chase, which is a God in a box. That kind of truth has not been given to the world. We will never have reality with a capital R that can be captured in a couple of neat syllables and just kind of dropped and exploded on people. What we have, what we have been given, is truth that has brown eyes and brown skin and two femur bones and a beating heart. That's the kind of truth we have. And I think if if we kind of sit with that for a minute, in light of the dilemma we struggle with with truth, this starts to sound like really, really good news. Why is it good news? Uh, Well, number one, if truth is a person, if truth is a person, it can't be wrapped up in a neat little package we can get our hands all the way around. It's way too large for that. Like, try, try wrapping someone in your household. Right? Like, truth does not wrap that easily, and that's really good news because it means we have no grounds for arrogance. Right? Like, it doesn't matter who you are, how much you've studied, how much you've learned, you're never going to be able to get your hands all the way around it. It's too big, it's too large, it's too living and breathing for that. So that concern we have that, that saying Jesus is the truth is going to get us all full of ourselves and our own grandeur, there's really no grounds for it. Right? Because knowing Jesus is the truth still doesn't mean you have it captured and owned and packaged. 
I mean, the second reason I think it's really good news is John, John says that this word, this truth that is Jesus, was there with God in creation from the start. The word was a part of this creative work that God was doing. And if that's true, that means that, that the truth had his fingers on everything in creation from the beginning. His fingerprints are all over it. So it shouldn't surprise us or alarm us if all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, with all sorts of faiths and philosophies, occasionally stumble on bits of the truth because the truth's fingerprints are all over everything. Right? It means we don't have to cling to this idea, I think, of some kind of like exclusive access that only people who are in the club have. The fingerprints are all over the place. It's not a shock or a source of alarm if people from time to time stumble on some of the prints. I mean, the third reason that I think this is really good news is, is if the truth has come to us as a person, a person cannot be easily weaponized. You know, people try to weaponize Jesus all the time, but the, the problem with trying to do it is you pick Jesus up and you try and fling him at people and he's really big and slippery, right? He doesn't, he doesn't sharpen, he doesn't land quite like the arrow you're hoping for because he has a will of his own. He directs his own actions. He can speak and he can act in ways that you cannot control. If truth is a person, like all of these concerns we have about how truth goes awry, and somehow, in some way, are just really profoundly answered by a completely new understanding of what truth is and how we have access to it. If, if truth's name is Jesus, we don't own truth, we don't possess truth, we simply follow him. That's the claim that Christians make. We don't claim that we own the truth. We just claim that we follow him. We claim that he speaks. We claim that he acts. We claim that he has his own eyes and skin and beating heart and bones. We claim that he is living, he acts, and we simply are seeking to follow. The truth that Christians celebrate at Christmas is not that we possess the truth, but that we have encountered the truth. That the truth is a who and not a what. And we celebrate at Christmas that when we are looking for the truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about ourselves, we are in a position to see that truth most clearly when we look through the light, through the lens of Jesus. Right? If there is truth in Jesus at all, that means that what happens when we look through him is we actually, for the first time, see God and the world and ourselves more clearly. That's why we come back to him over and over again. It's like coming back to a pair of glasses. It's like coming back to the light switch. Right? He is the way that we see what really is. What we celebrate at Christmas is the fingerprints of God. The fingerprints of truth are all over creation. We, we celebrate at Christmas that Jesus is who he is, which is always more than we know, more than we've mastered, more than we can control, more than we can capture or contain. We celebrate that he goes where he wishes, and that's really good news because it means no power can contain him. Nothing can shut us or anyone else away from him. Nothing can keep him out. He is who he is. He goes where he goes. And that's good news for everybody, right? Because nobody gets to pin, control, 
Like, he is a God at loose in the world. We don't own him, we follow him. That's our claim. We don't own him, we just follow him. That is a radical new definition of truth that I think is exactly what we need in a world of contested claims. I want you to just spend a moment with me in prayer together. God, we humans love our treatises and our arguments. We love our ideas sharpened to arrows that we use to cut each other down. But you knew all that about us already. And so you have sent us a truth in a different form. You have sent us the truth about you, the truth about us, the truth about the world, in the form of a man with brown eyes and brown skin who lived and lives unleashed. We pray that you would make us both humble and bold in light of this truth. Lord, that we wouldn't seek to be people who master you or own you, that we would seek instead to be people who encounter you, who follow you. Lord, make us small representation of your truth, even in our flawed and imperfect ways. So that when people see us, they would see little, small reflections of you and turn to see you in greater color and fullness. We thank you for the gift of revelation, of light, of truth given to us in Jesus. The reality, the word, the full expression of you. It's in his name that we pray and that we see and that we hope. Amen.